John wants us to take full possession of the life that he so well explained in the gospel. He stresses that we need to, to abide, to let abide in us what we heard from the beginning, that when Jesus came into the world in his life, he was, he, he was and continues to be the physical, obvious, and personal presentation of God and of God's great love for us. Also, that we can abide with the Son and with the Father and with each other in a deep and rich fellowship. And this is the promise that He has promised us. Zoe life or eternal life. Here and now, not at the rapture or not at some time in the future, but here and now. So, in John wrote his letter, he said specifically for three reasons. That our joy might be full. He wrote concerning false teachers, and he wrote that we might have eternal life. And some of the things that we've gleaned and some of the things that we've seen so far, when you just kind of list them out, are kind of astonishing things for us to grasp hold of. We saw that John was an eyewitness of the life of Christ, so he had a purpose in writing. He had uh, um, a, a credibility about what he was writing. We can have fellowship with God and with each other. Our joy may be full. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We have an advocate with the Father. He is the propitiation for our sins. We are um, not to love the world or the things in the world, and he promised us eternal life. We are in the last hour, he said, and there will be antichrists or false teachers, and there will be the spirit of the antichrist. But we are anointed by the Holy Spirit, and we can know all things. The great love he had for us, because of the great love that he had for us, we can be called the children of God. He came to take away our sins. We have passed from death to life. We should love each other in the same way that he loved us. We should not love in word, but in deed. And we can prove that we know him if we walk in the light, if we keep his commandments, if we love one another, and by abiding in him and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this love letter that John wrote to his beloved church. And we believe, Lord, that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it to your beloved church, us. And so, Lord, help us to glean from it tonight the things that you would have us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we ended in chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. And two matters are covered there, faith and love. So chapter 3, verse 23. And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So that's faith. You should have faith. And the second is that you should love one another. In verse 24, he brings up one other item that's important for us to look at and we'll be looking at tonight, and that is abiding, abiding in the Holy Spirit and in Christ. So verse 24, Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he gave us. So in the first six verses of chapter 4, John talks about faith. He re, he's going back to that verse about faith. And he's going to talk to us about proving uh, the false teachers. So verse chapter 4, the first six verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, 
But test the spirits, whether they are God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as the world, and the, wor- and the world bear- hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He continues to warn his beloved about the false teachers. He's calling these readers beloved and little children. He tells them to prove or to test the spirit or the teachers. And that's something that we would encourage you to do. Always have the word of God out and listen to what you're being taught and what you're being saying. Make sure that it matches up to scripture. One of the joys and privileges that Pastor Brandon and I have had is to be able to take this congregation through the whole Bible. We're Trusting the Lord doesn't come before we get through Revelation. But uh, if he does, I guess that'll be okay. <laughs> so, um, but we, we have given the whole counsel of God. We haven't skipped around uh, too much. We did a little bit of, of tweaking the schedule here with the New Testament. But uh, overall, we have basically gone through the whole Bible. So he provides a very straightforward test to prove if someone confesses, or a better word might be professes, that they're a Christian. Do you believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? And so you say yes or no to that, and that is the test. And so if somebody says, well, I like Jesus, he was a good man, he was a prophet, or something like that, then he failed the test. So we know that Jesus came in the flesh and became part of God. The truth that Jesus came in the flesh. In in verse 3, those that didn't make the profession denied the true Jesus, they were the spirit of the Antichrist. And that's what the Gnostics and the false teachers were doing. They were coming in and they were saying, yes, Jesus was this and Jesus was that, but he couldn't have been God because he's part of the fleshly world. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians Thessalonians in Thessalonica, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things and hold fast to what is good. The Gnostic teachers said that Jesus was God, but could not have actually become flesh and blood as a human because God could have no part in the physical, material, impure world that we lived in. Today, some groups deny that Jesus is really God, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Muslims. In verse 4, it says, "...because we are in God and not of the world." That's what we talked about last week. We're not to be of the world. We're in the world, but we're not to be of it. And so we're free from that. So that's reassuring us that Jesus is in us and he is greater than he that is in the world. We are the child of God. Remember last week, um, uh, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us, us that we should be called the children of God by your relationship with Jesus Christ, by your salvation, by your becoming a Christian. You are a child of God and you need not fear 
the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, because we have the indwelling spirit of God. That spirit is greater than anything that can be mustered against us. Then he is in the world. Satan, his allies, his demons, everyone is not a match for the spirit that is in you and in me. We have this resource for all aspects and all areas in our life. We can have victory. The presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit and Jesus himself always makes victory possible. If we will just rely on who is in us and not on we ourselves. And I'll tell you, I'm probably the most guilty of all of us for trying to do things my way, trying to think I have the answers to this problem and that problem, and I'm not willing to wait for the Lord to take charge of things. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And when I come up against things in the world, sometimes I don't even take time to pray. I just respond. And very seldom do I wait like I should. I'm learning to do it better because... I've gotten older and I've gone through more problems by sticking my nose in uh, in ways that it shouldn't have been done. But can't you all identify with that, that so often we take, uh, take it upon ourselves. We need to wait and let the Holy Spirit take it. We have no place for fear as Christians because we do have many spiritual enemies. Those of you in service, youth call, as you go out, there are spiritual enemies. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spirits and powers and high places you're going to sense some of those on the mission field as you travel. I'm not trying to scare you. I know your tickets are bought. You can't say no at this point. (laughs) But greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. So there's no place for us to have fear. Not one of those enemies who come against us is greater than he who is in us. That's what John is trying to tell us as he writes this. In verses 5 and 6, John continues with the idea of separation from the world. Last week we spoke about that, about being in the world but not of the world. He points out that the people in the world speak like the world and the world hears them. You know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can tell when you're around some worldly people. And, you know, they should be able to tell when, when uh, you're around them that it's uncomfortable you know, what do you, how do, what do you do when you walk into somebody just talking filthy, just talking trash, just talking about things that you shouldn't be? Are you willing to walk away? Are you willing to say, you know, I don't need to hear this or, or the bad jokes and stuff like that? Or do you join in and laugh? And are you one of those, what they call it, um, um, spy Christians, the Christians that go around nobody knows about, but you just, you're kind of a secret Christian? Yeah. So Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what John has done here, he's appealed, beloved... The appeal is a beloved test every spirit. The duty that you have is to prove or test the spirit. And the reason, because many false teachers have gone out into the world. In verses 7 to 11, John expands on the principle of loving one another that we talked a little bit about last week. In verses 7 and 8, first we see a call to love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. And knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love. Interesting in the Greek language, those who are loved, let us love, is the way it reads. Those who are loved, 
let us love. So I could take a test and say, how many of you are loved by God, loved by Jesus? Okay. So you have no option but to love because that's the way that it actually reads. Those who are loved, let us love. We are not commanded to love one another to earn or become worthy to God. We love one another because we are loved by God and have received that love and live in the light of that love. Because we have been so loved by God, we need to love one another. It says, let us love one another for love is God. Throughout 1 John, we have seen his emphasis on love. Here he shows why it is so important. If love is of God, then those who claim to be born of God and claim to know God must be able to love one another in the body of Christ and in the church and in the community and in the world. If you have the love of God in you and you have Jesus in you and the Holy Spirit in you, then loving each other here should be a slam dunk. That should be easy. Loving each other at the church across the street or down the road, that ought to be pretty easy too. They're brothers and sisters in Christ and part of the body. The stranger at Bill's or the Cedar Glen Inn, yeah, we've got to love them too. And those people who don't like us, the people who don't understand our political viewpoint, you mean we've got to love them too? Yes. If Christ is in you and you have the love of God in you, then we need to be able to love them all. John gets to the bottom line in this passage. It's not an option. It's not something for us to pick and choose who we're going to love. And he says, and he and knows God. The person who loves knows God. And that word we've talked about before is gnosko. And it's specifically, you know that God loves you by experience. You have experienced the love of God. If I was to have a testimony night right now and said, okay, here's the microphone. Come up and give your testimony. Could you tell me anything, Miss Linda, that God has done in your life? Could you tell me that some good stories? Yeah? I bet you Danielle could too. I bet you Frank could. Yeah? I bet you all of you could come up here and we could be here till next Sunday night telling about the love of God and what he's done for us because we have experienced it. We have gnosko it. That's a good thing. John is saying when we have really experienced it, we will show our love for one another. And the love that's being used here is agape. It's the unconditional love. It's choosing for the highest good of the other person. It's not a feeling. You know, sometimes, guys, we feel like being special to our wives. I mean, they've just cooked us a great meal. They've done something special for us. And we just feel like doing it. And so we do it. That's not what it's talking about. It's that choice of loving them when you don't feel like doing it. When they didn't make you breakfast before you went to work, when you didn't get something washed that you needed washed for your job or something like that, that's the choice to love. That's the agape love. And that's what this is talking about. For God is love. And what an awesome truth that is. Agape love actually describes the character and the heart of God. He is so loving and so compassionate that that word, God is love, God is agape, actually describes his very being. 
Wouldn't that be amazing if it could be said about us? Brandon is agape. Wow, that would be, that would be, wow, Mike, Michael is agape. I mean, God is love. None of, I'm sorry, but none of us have made it to where we can say our name and say that we're agape. But with God, he is agape. In verses 9 to 11, he goes on and gives us a further definition of love. And John tells us the divine plan that God so loved us, repeating that the, the purpose that we might have life, abundant life, or what kind of life? Zoe. Zoe life, okay. And we see this life comes by living through him. And we can have Zoe life, we can have eternal life, we can have this wonderful, abundant life that Jesus has promised us now. We don't have to wait for it. He loved us first. We loved him because he became the substitute the propitiation for our sins, it says there, I think in verse 9 or 10. Here's something Spurgeon said on this. Spurgeon wrote a lot of sermons on this particular passage. There's one sentence coming up here, a short sentence in our passage we're looking at tonight that he wrote five sermons on. I said, five sermons on eight words. How in the world could you do that? But he did. So here's what he said about verse 10. If there is to be reconciliation between God and man... Man ought to have sought God. The offender ought to first to apply for forgiveness. We should have gone to God and asked for forgiveness before he sent his son. The weaker should apply to the stronger for help. The poor man should ask the one who has it all for the distribution of alms. But here in his love that God sent his son. He was the first to send an embassy of peace. And it became, and it's because of his great love that we should love one another. In verse 11, this is where he says, Beloved, for the first, for the third time, calling on his readers to act. In verse 1, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. In verse 7, he said, Beloved, let us love one another. And now in verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to again love one another. But he throws in that little simple word, but a powerful world word, so. Beloved, if God so loved. Haven't you heard that before somewhere? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. This love will lead to practical action. And again, I'm going to quote something from Spurgeon because I couldn't say it any better. Here's the question he asked in his sermon. Has anyone offended you? Seek reconciliation. Oh, but I am the offended party. So was God. Oh, but I've been insulted. So was God. All the wrong was towards him, yet he sent his son. Oh, but the other party, they're unworthy. They don't really care. They hurt my feelings. They've been talking about me. They're just really unworthy. So are we. All the wrong was towards him, yet he sent his son. So, has anybody offended you? Are you carrying a little 
man, you know, if I see him coming down the hallway, I think I'll go the other way. If I see him in the grocery store, I'll go to the other end while they finish at the produce section. If somebody's offended you, seek reconciliation. But they did it to me. Seek reconciliation. Agape love is God's example. We offended him, yet he sent his son. And now John's going to start talking about abiding. And he's been using this throughout the, uh, the letter. In chapter 2, verse 6, verse six, he says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And in verse 14, he's talking to the young men. Because you are strong, the word of God abides in you. And in verse 17, and the word is passing, uh, and the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And verse 24 of chapter 2, therefore, let him abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the son and in the father. And then in verses 27 and 28, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and is just has taught you, you will abide in him. And in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him. And when he appears, we may have the confidence and not be ashamed before him at his com- coming. And then in chapter 3, verse 24, Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit who he has given us. Remember that Jesus taught in John chapter 15, I am the vine. That was his last of the seven I am statements. He talked about that during his walk from the Last Supper to the garden when he was comforting his disciples. They were heading for deserting him, for persecution, uh, for a time without their leader. But he promised them then that he would send the Holy Spirit. But he said, abiding in the vine is necessary to produce fruit. And you know the story. There's the vine, there's the branches and their fruit. And we're the branches. If we're abiding in the vine and producing fruit, what does it say about the branch? It says that you're healthy. It says that you're healthy. If there's fruit in your life and you're abiding in Christ, then you're healthy. And that's what we want to be looking at as we go through the rest of this chapter. We come to realize that we can do this love only by abiding in Him and His love. So in verse 12, again, loving one another is the greatest evidence of this abiding and the way for others to see God and the way his love is perfected in us. The word perfected means mature and complete. Has anyone offended you? Go seek reconciliation. If you have a love in you and you're growing and you're abiding in him, then you are becoming mature and complete. So let's look at verses 12 through 17. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us the spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in the world. The connection between chapter 3, verse 24, and this whole passage about abiding is we know experientially by Gnosko that we abide in him when we express ourselves with that love. In verse 16, it talks about by living our lives as Christians, abiding in his love, we, become, we come to a place knowing that God abides in us and he abides in us. In, we abide in him and he abides in us. When we come to know that and understand that, it is really freeing for us. Paul knew it in Romans chapter 8. He said that nothing could separate him from the love of God. In verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or or pearl or sword or people that we need to be reconciled with? Can it separate us from the love of God? No, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor heights nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Coming to that place in our walk with the Lord gives us an amazing freedom to love the things that we can't love in the natural gives us a freedom not to fear gives us a freedom to be able to overcome. And we'll be talking about that in a a minute as well. In verse 17, when it says another, it's another love has been perfected among us. Actually in the Greek, the word is used twice. So it means it is perfectly perfected. It is completely complete. That's the place that we are working to get to. Having boldness in the judgment day. When we get to heaven, are we going to have boldness? We are if we're in Christ and he is in us. You know, you may know that you're a sinner. But on the judgment day, you're going to really know it. You may know the reality of hell. But on the judgment day, you're going to really, really know it. You may know the reality and the greatness of Jesus' salvation. But on the judgment day, you're going to really know it. Because we have this boldness now, we should be able to come to that place of, of handling it now. In verse 18, we have no fear in judgment because of his great love. And in verse 19... We love him because he first loved us. Eight simple words, which I told you Spurgeon wrote five sermons on this. We love him is the greatest declaration we can make is we love him. And here's one snippet from one of those sermons. He's talking to his congregation like I might be talking to you to say something like this. Be out and out for him. Unfurl your colors. Never hide them, nail them to the mast, raise them up on the highest flagpole, 
And say all to who ridicule the saints, if you have any words for the followers of Christ, ill words, pour them out on me. But know this, you shall hear it whether you like it or not. I love Jesus Christ. Wow, that's what he was saying to these people in these simple words. We love him. Are you willing to step up when you see somebody else being criticized for their walk of faith, for their efforts of service in the Lord, and you hear them being criticized, you hear them being ridiculed? Are you willing to up to stand up and get in the in somebody's get politely get in their face if you're willing to you can't if you're willing to stand up to them and say, hey, 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 you know what? If you really don't like Christians that much, put it on me. But I want to tell you something. I love Jesus Christ. I thought that was a power. The whole sermon was powerful, but that was just one piece that was amazing. So in verses 20 and 21, he reaffirms, if we love God, we must love each other. Chapter 5, John continues to reiterate what he has been saying. And he's going to add two more insights for us. One, keeping his commandments are not burdensome. Believers can overcome the world. So two new things. Keeping commandments are not burdensome and believers can overcome the world. Just as loving one another is a sign of our love for God and our relationship of abiding in him, so is the love and obedience to God's commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. They're actually good. If we look at them, we see how wise and good the commandments are for our good. They're to show us the best and the most fulfilling life possible. They're like the manufacturer's handbook for living. You know, if you really run into problems, using the word of God as a handbook, uh, as an operations manual is a good thing. Telling us what to do because he knows how it works for our best. He knows what's best for us. It's not given. The commandments of God, Old Testament, New Testament, if you break it down to just the two of them, is not to restrict us or to keep us from some kind of pleasure, but it's just the opposites. It's so that we can have life and that our life can be full and it can be full of joys. Since we believe on him is the key for being born of God, back at five, in chapter 5, verse 1, the key to victory is faith. And not just the faith that you have when you come to Christ, that moment in time when you say, I believe and I choose to be with the Lord, but a continual or consistent abiding faith, an ongoing reliance and trust in Jesus Christ. How many of us have gone through struggles And we've doubted if God cares or God knows or why he would have allowed this trial or that situation. And we've argued with him and we've come to a place of losing faith, not the faith of salvation, but the faith that he was in control. The faith faith that Romans 8.28 is still in there. Sometimes we get to that place. So the word faith or believe does not merely mean to believe at the point of salvation. When we, but it means to be confident, to commit to, to entrust with faith at all times. And that's what we need to have. And that's what it's talking about. It's because of who we are in Jesus, not we ourselves. 
In John 16:33, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Because Jesus has overcome the world, and because we abide in him, he loves us and we love him, we become overcomers in Jesus. How many of you have tribulation going on right now in your life? Some of you are struggling with things that are sinful. Some of you are struggling with things that are coming at you from outside your family. Some of you are struggling from things that are inside your family. Some of you might be coming, things might be struggling between a group of of young people who are getting ready to take a trip to Mexico, Cambodia, and the Philippines, and you're not just perfectly in sync yet. You know, you're not quite sure that that person knows that that um, he needs to help out with the dishes or whatever you guys do in your things. So there's all these things that are going on, but he that's in us is greater than he that's in the world, and we can be overcomers in Jesus Christ. And John gives a, a, a precise definition now in verse 6 of... Um, uh, of the definition of what Jesus was, a physical birth. And this was one of the things that he was going against the Antichrist of the day, the people with that spirit of Antichrist, the false teachers, because they believed that he was not born as a human, and this was opposed by the Gnostics. And this was an interesting in study. So let me read you uh, 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by the water and blood. And it, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one thing. Now, if you have a New King James, you probably have a footnote if you look carefully. If you have an ESV version of that verse, it probably reads a little bit different. Um, Those words um, from uh, from after heaven in verse 7 and until... um, um, the end of verse 8, uh, the water and the blood and the, th- and the three agree as one, are not in most of the ancient texts and original texts. So it looks like they were added in somewhere along the way. Um, so, th- so the way that it reads is that, um, uh, that God came and that he was born of the flesh. And so you have to kind of look at that a little bit different because of the um, insertion. So you should have a footnote in there, and I think ESV takes them out. Uh, doesn't doesn't put those words in there. In verses eleven thirteen, the assurance of life in the Son of God. Chapter five, verse eleven. And this is the testimony that God had given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Somebody asks you the question: Is God Jesus the only way? It's a great place to take him. You either have the son or you don't have the son. You can go back to the test in chapter 4. If you confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Okay. Verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. Assurance of life in the son of God. 
God's essential message is eternal life is the gift of God. It's received for us in Jesus Christ. In verse 12, he who has the Son has life. And in verse 13 is one of the reasons that he wrote this letter, this love letter, is so that we would know that we have eternal life. In stating the message so plainly, John wants you to know, to be assured fully, completely, that you have eternal life and to be confident and to continue to believe it on a daily basis. In verses 14 and 15, we can have confidence that our prayers will be answered. Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Now, it presupposes that you're abiding in Christ. If you're praying outside of the will of God, if you're praying for your own selfish desires, then you're not abiding with Christ in that moment, and so those prayers aren't going to be answered. But if you are one with Him and you're one with His Spirit, your prayers are going to be directed by Him in a way that you will have them answered. In verses 16 and 17, we can pray for our sinning brothers. You know, that's the first thing we need to do for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we know that are in sin is pray for them. But too often, praying for them is the last thing we do. First, we go and we rebuke them and criticize them, point out their faults, tell them how to get fixed, get that thing corrected, and then maybe we'll pray with them. But we should be praying for them immediately. We should pray for them first, and we should let the Holy Spirit do His work for our brothers that are having difficult times. John is addressing brothers when he talks about this sin that does not lead to death. He is not speaking of a spiritual death, but of a physical death. God, in his mercy, may consider it best sometimes to take someone home because of the way that their life is heading. He may want to save them from their misery. In verses 18 to 21, John brings up the wicked one. 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, does not live in a continual sin. But he who has been born of God keeps him, and the wicked one does not touch him. We, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and the eternal life. The underlying force of the spirit of Antichrist that's in the world, the one who wants to overcome us by the world, is Satan himself. When it says that we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, it talks about habitual, willful sin, a settled, continued lifestyle of sin, a willful disobedience. It's not an oops, it's not the times that we just make a mistake, but it's that pattern of a sinful life and a sinful nature. In the battle against sin, it is all essential that we keep our minds set on who we are in Jesus Christ and the one who keeps us. If you're caught up in a sin, if you're struggling with something, and you're trying to work yourself out of it, if you're trying to self-discipline yourself in it, you may have a tough fight. 
But if you will come to the understanding that it's Christ in you and that he is the one that overcomes the world, he will help you through it and he will settle it for you easy. The, um, the ESV reads on this passage, I, I like the way it reads, so I wanted to read it to you because there's a, a word here that needs to be understood. Uh, the ESV for verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. One born of God is Jesus. He became flesh. We beheld his glory. The one John said that he touched, he heard, he saw. The one that he bears witness of and he declared to us, that one is Jesus, the one that's born of God. And the he... Jesus keeps him, us. It shouldn't be himself. It should be him. Because we ourselves can't keep ourselves pure. It has to be the Lord doing it. So that should read, and he, Jesus, keeps him, us, the one born of God, keeps us. And so we're, we're being kept by him. We're not keeping ourselves. And it says that the one from the world does not touch him. That means that he can't lay hold of him. He can't grab him and grasp him in the Greek. You might get bombarded. You might get touched. You might have things come in your way that are a problem, but he can't take hold of you because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so back in verse 20, John returns to the main point of this whole love letter that he wrote us, that we can have fellowship with God. We can be one with God. We can abide with God. And we can know him by experience that we're in him. And this is the truth, that Jesus is the true God and in him is eternal life. And then in verse 21, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. He's been using words like children, little children, beloved, and brothers throughout this thing. But this title of little one, it shows affection. It shows a deep affection. It also shows that there is um, a proof of regeneration. There's a family connection because he's calling them my little children or little children. It's a title that indicates humility It's a title that indicates teachability. My little children. Children are teachable. It's a title that implies faith. Little children, you have faith. And it's also a title that implies weakness. All of those things in that little phrase, little children. But how tender, how loving John writes to these little children. And he says such a simple thing. Keep yourself from idols. Wow, that's it? That's the, that's, the, that's the whole thing? Keep yourself from idols? Things of this world. Anything that divides our heart in its loyalty to the Lord. Anything that divides our heart. Anything that causes us to compromise. Even the false Jesus that the Gnostics were teaching was an idol or could become an idol. So do you have idols in your life? Are there things that are keeping you from your loyalty to Christ, keeping you things? That might be some of the things where you have those, those little sins that just won't go away. You know, nobody knows about it but me and God. 
but it just doesn't seem to go away. It might be the thing that's keeping you from that abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. John wrote this letter that our joy might be full, that we would not be controlled by sin, and that we might know that we have eternal life. And he encouraged us with those words we studied last week. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we can be called the children of God.